0: Welcome to Jersey Gives a Damn, a conversation with the innovators, leaders, and changemakers making New Jersey's communities stronger. I'm Erin Turner, Chief Philanthropic Officer at the Community Foundation of New Jersey, where it's our privilege to help hundreds of philanthropically-minded New Jerseyans have the greatest impact on the causes and communities they care about. Today, we are so happy to have with us Mark Dingleson the inaugural director of the New Jersey Office of the Food Security Advocate, which oversees statewide anti-hunger efforts. Prior to assuming this role, Mark served as executive director of HuMac, a leading New Jersey organization in Patterson, focused on fighting hunger and its root causes through a holistic trauma-informed approach, providing groceries and basic necessities to families and individuals in need. Welcome, Mark.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're so happy to have you. Thanks for joining us. Can you give us an overview of the food insecurity challenge in New Jersey and maybe nationally? And what are the big drivers of food insecurity?
1: Sure. And let me preface by saying a lot of the challenges that we were facing, and I think you and I may have said it when I first met you, Eric. These are not challenges that are new, especially in 2020 when the pandemic hit. These are just challenges that were now front and center to us, and they continue to be front and center to us. So I think nationally there's almost 40 million people that are food insecure, as defined by the USDA. I mean, our farm bill, a huge chunk of it is spent on SNAP to assist mm-hmm. people in in need, more specifically in New Jersey. And last I checked these numbers, there's about 700,000 700, people. I wish it was 700 people. 700,000 people that are currently on SNAP. And I think there's about 650,000 People that are food insecure. Let's also clarify. So the U.S. USDA definition for food insecure is a lack of access to safe, sufficient, nutritious food for a household. And we'll talk more about like why that's so, why that definition is so important later. That's what it looks like the landscape. But I think it's really important for your, for anybody listening to this podcast, Aaron, to understand that I think part of the food insecurity landscape we have to understand is our frontline organizations right now, including the one that I was running, are still overwhelmed. I remember I gave an interview in 2020 where I said, if this pandemic is scary to you and you care about community building and you care about childhood trauma, then this should be doubly scary to you. And we should be concerned about what this looks like in 2021, 2022, 2023. Mm -hmm. Right now, frontline organizations are serving 100 to 200% more people than they've ever served. Mm -hmm. I was at a food access organization down in Franklin. And the CEO reminded me that just about every other week, he's got a client that reminds him that last year, they used to be a donor.
0: So you think the problem, at least in New Jersey, maybe nationally, is getting worse, not better in terms of, let's say, March 2020 to now?
1: Correct. So the difference is, in 2020, it was all over the media. It was in our faces. There's lines at the food bank. So the way I classify it actually is whereas 2020 was a burning dumpster fire that we were all looking at. This is more of a quiet burn that nobody's talking about. It's it's not as prominent like in pictures. It's still there. When I was on the front lines, I was getting at least, you know, five to 10 emails every week. And this is 2022 before I took office from a single mom with multiple kids saying, I've never been to your organization before, but I need help. And these were new people and we were already serving. Our increase in how many people we were helping increased by about 300%.
0: And I keep hearing um, from nonprofits across the state that the cost of food, the cost increase is causing such a burden on so many organizations. It's up I don't know. The last I it was 40% the cost of food. Yeah. So organizations that might provide food as a secondary service are really pinched.
1: I mean, a great example. I was listening to NPR several weeks ago, but this still holds true now. It was a donut shop. I actually think this donut shop was in Brooklyn, but it is relevant to this conversation. Yeah. This donut shop for their eggs were paying mm. 99 cents a dozen. And that same donut shop now has to pay four bucks. And those are for wholesale prices. Imagine what that looks like for families.
0: What are the uh, the main activities or interventions that hold the most promise in addressing food insecurity in our state? What are you um, seeing that is
1: working? Working is a very broad term, <laughs> right? Let's say models that, hold the most hope. And I think it's important to also note, so one of the things that I was doing prior to taking this office was studying models from across the nation as well, that were really making me the most hopeful. And the same characteristics hold true for programs that I'll mention in everything that I was seeing across the nation. I'm an ACES practitioner. I care about all my food security work is about preventing adverse childhood experiences. When we teach. About preventing adverse childhood experiences, we say you have to build common language and common understanding so that we all collectively understand what helps and what hurts so that families have an opportunity to feel seen. And that's how you prevent adverse childhood experiences. And then furthermore, we teach that the best way to do that is by actually giving agency and power to community Mm -hmm. and building community through multi-sector partnerships. Work that So it's not just
0: about handing a box of food to a family
1: ending hunger has to be about more than just handing canned goods out. So there are the models that make me the most hopeful. Models where there are multiple partners at the table, along with the communities that they're serving. There's community representation. And everybody is trying to agree as to what the problem is, how they're going to solve it, and what are the words that they're going to use to describe what the problem is and how they're going to solve it. And the most hopeful models define the area in which they're going to work. It defines what are their outcomes and their outputs. Outcome is um, how are we tracking knowledge, attitude, belief, and behavior. Output is how much of this are we going to do? And everybody's in agreement. So that's a more macro definition. More specifically, regional food hubs, where you define an area where you can build a local ecosystem, whether it's a three-mile radius or is it a county. And then you have a central agency that can move things like government food and food supply. And you've got partner agencies that are looking at, well, who's doing childcare? Who's doing housing? Because it wasn't enough in my line of work on the front lines, it wasn't enough to be able to provide frozen chicken, high quality frozen chicken, eggs, vegetables, and rice to a family. They're not truly food secure if there's a ton of black mold in their apartment. Or if they're a homeless or highly mobile family that's moving every couple of months. So those are the models that really give me the most hope and make me the most excited. There are models like this around the country. The difference, though, that is also working here in New Jersey is we now have partners in the legislature that are willing to do these broad stroke policies that support these models that hold the most promise.
0: You talk about bringing the right partners to the table, and I'm imagining it's how people who work in housing... Workforce, childcare, education, uh, runs sort of the gamut. It could be, I would imagine, five, 10 partners at the table talking about food security as, as a piece of it, as making a family whole. Uh, what does it look like to incentivize that or foster that in a community that may not have, you know, maybe folks are working as hard as they can, but kind of in silos and doing the work that they have? How do you think about bringing those conversations
1: to bear? Great question. I've screwed up enough in terms of like, I should have done that better. Or I should have like been more honest in this conversation. So I'm like, aha, here's a formula that works. First <laughs> piece of the formula, communities in charge. So one of the things that worked for me the most, it helped me as a nonprofit professional to not have to guess. I started hiring from the communities I was serving and empowering that team and building up that team. So it was their job to reach back mm-hmm. and lift up. It was my job to resource them. So at that point, when you have that, and that's an ongoing thing, to build a team culture and an organizational culture that is driven by and comprised of the community that you're serving is constant work and dedication. But what happens is if you do that and you're dedicated to that, very few people can push back on you when you say, we need to do this together. And even people working in silos, they could push back on me, but it's very hard to push back on somebody living in the community that we're all trying to collectively serve. And that person saying, I need you at the table. So element one, empower community. And that means putting your money where your mouth is. Resource that team member. And empowering the community is more than let's hold a focus group. Be very honest about that. We're talking, do they have access to healthcare? Do they have access to childcare? Are they living in a safe space? Do they have good wages? Empower the team, have them be the drivers and the owners. And start asking that team and start utilizing that team to ask the community, what do you need? And that will define the partners that you need at the table. And I learned this from purpose-built communities Mm -hmm. out of Atlanta. Uh, We were in a brainstorming session with them, and they were very honest with me about this. And I was like, that's so dope. It's so true. You need your best-in-class partners at the table. And best-in-class doesn't just mean who has the most money. It means who's willing to share language with you. Who's willing to give power into the table? Who is willing to listen to the community and put their resources behind that? So empower the community, listen and ask the community based on that feedback, define who your partners are going to be and get your best in class partners to the table first. You only need the early adopters and whatever system or program you create, just leave room for other people to join the party.
0: What's the state's role in this? Is it I don't know, providing facilitators or coaches who can come in and help a community sort of stay on track, or help define the outcome, or you know, play the whiteboard brainstorming, take notes role?
1: Yeah. So, so are you talking macro level? Or are you talking about my office, or maybe you're just talking macro first? Like, what could the state?
0: You take your pick. For?
1: Let's go macro first. Okay. The state's role in this is having a willingness to listen and acknowledge shortcomings. There's a state official who, when she said this to me, I was like, man, you and I are going to work so well together and we're going to do so many great things together. He said, Mark, we're not good at building community relationships. We need you and your team to help us. And for those of us that um, are on the front lines doing this, it's refreshing and encouraging and inspiring for the state to come in to participate. I'll say this too. I think that's also philanthropy's role in this, being willing to come in, listen, and participate in the conversation. That's what it looks like to give power into this table where we're making decisions. It doesn't mean literally like, I have no power in here. I have no ego. No, it's if you listen and you acknowledge, man, that's a great point. You know where I fall short and where I really need help, and this is where I can help you. I think that's the state's role in this. In terms of my office, what I think we can do here. The superpower of this office is to be a convening body. It's part of the reason why I took this role because in my previous role, doing collective impact work is challenging when you're running a day-to-day organization, especially these last couple of years. But taking this role, quite literally, my sole job for as long as Trenton will keep me is to text you and say, or email you or call you or look at you and say, hey, you're doing this. Do you know this person? Let's get together. Hey, have we listened to community over here? You want to focus here? Let's get together. We can bring people together. I think this office is new enough and exciting enough to enough people that people are willing to come to the table.
0: So would a community, um, let's say in Cumberland County, call you up to say, hey, Mark, we need help. We've got these great things happening. Here's where we have gaps. Can you help us design a collective impact approach to this?
1: I won't be able to be directly involved in actual program design and implementation the way I used to be. But one of the things that I told the governor and that I've told the senior policy advisor that I report to is that I fully intend on staying in community to listen. So, I mean, this is what, my fourth month in office? And I've already driven as far up as Essex. I'm headed all the way down to Cumberland County. Um So that I can listen, learn, and document. My office will be able to document these anecdotal stories, these needs, and make these stories and these needs part of policymaking conversations. When policymakers say, hey, Mark, what do you think about this? What do you think about the farm bill? What do you think about the state budget? What do you think about this? I can have community needs and community gaps and community conversations front and center.
0: Yeah, it sounds to me like you have you play an important role uh, almost translating to our state government what's happening and then assisting, facilitating local conversations in some way to develop this collective impact approach. Correct. And I almost wonder if that's a role, if you've given some thought to this, if that's a role for philanthropy to say we can help support coaches or trainers or however you think about facilitating those local conversations. Uh, as you said, you, when you're running a large organization, it's really hard to also have time to develop collective impact. It's a lot of work. It's one of my wonderings if that's a place where philanthropy could be supportive.
1: Yes. And not just in funding things like technical assistance, Aaron, or funding. There's this line out there, funders need to just fund and get out of the way. I don't necessarily prescribe to that. I think funders need to participate and fund. There's a level you have to be very cautious because you're the one holding the purse string. So at some point, it's going to sound like you're telling a grantee to do something. But when you're building true consensus and collaboration to do collective impact, we're all able to participate. My research and evaluation strategy manager says this all the time. When we're at the table... We can all acknowledge what we're getting out of this and acknowledge what we're giving into this. And philanthropy can play a role in that. I'll share with you too. Working with philanthropy is one of my key goals. So what I'm what I'm going to focus on in this role that's unique enough and exciting enough because it's an executive branch role. I'm going to focus on informing policy, building collaboration and philanthropy, and working with local organizations, whether you're, you're a multi-million dollar food bank or whether you're a collective impact project in Camden. So those are my three buckets in all. All of that i'm going to be very vocal with people especially with philanthropy as we're building collaboration about what true food security means so food insecurity is lack of access to food it's on one it's on one of the government websites but as my research and evaluation strategy manager has always told me food security some of your listeners may have heard me say this in other interviews true food security exists when all people at all times have social, economic, and physical access to safe, sufficient, and nutritious food for an active and healthy lifestyle. We all have to agree on what that means. And we all have to agree, especially with philanthropy, if we're talking about food security organizations. Are you funding an organization that focuses on access, availability, utilization, stability, or agency? Because food security means you're focusing on all of those things. We don't look at it as just one singular Things A lot of our emergency food programs, we call them access programs, but it's mostly about availability. Is the food available? Access becomes, does a parent or caregiver have the ability to buy it, to walk to it, to take a short bus ride to it? Utilization is like, if you're a lactating mom, A breastfeeding mom, do you know how to use this food to increase your lactation? Stability means, is it stable? You're able to access it. It's available. You know how to use it. And if COVID-20 hits, it's not going anywhere. And do you have the agency to believe that the decisions you make affect your life and what you can do? If one of those things fall off, then food security suffers. One of philanthropy's major roles is to agree on what that means, because that helps us define What we need to fund both upstream and downstream.
0: Not not a simple task here, Mark.
1: No, that's why I lost my hair. (laughs) Trying to figure this out.
0: So I have a burning question that I have wondered for some time, and I hope it doesn't sound too naive. It feels to me like an enormous amount of time, resources, energy, logistics are you know are required to figure out the. food banks and the food pantries and the volunteer hours and the vans that need to drive the food. You know, it's pervasive across the state and every mm-hmm. community has all, of you know, volunteers that feel very good about handing out the food. But I often wonder, would it just be easier and save a ton of money across the board and staffing and volunteer and food to just provide families with a grocery gift card every month to serve their needs? Is that naive?
1: Great question, and not so naive. There was actually an article in Food Bank News, which for anybody that wants to read about like what upstream food access food banking looks like, Food Bank News, is. I, I follow their stuff. Here's why. There's an article in Food Bank News that came out about two weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Not so naive, your question, because he's the CEO of the Houston Food Bank, multi-million dollar food bank, who said that if all we're doing is using our funding to buy produce and meat to then distribute, it is a losing proposition and we would be best served if we just gave gift cards. If we let help families to buy the food. What I will propose though, to people that want to do that, we have to have a more holistic view because what does it cost us to shop for groceries? So it's for me, it's my wife and my kid. They, I say we spend like maybe two hundred bucks on groceries a month. That's cheap. Yeah, I know. We're, we, we go to we go to a bunch of different places. You
0: have chickens um, in the backyard, giving you eggs.
1: Yeah, I actually raise my own chickens. I once I once considered my old organization. I once considered putting chickens on our roof to help with sustainability <laughs> and with feeding. Long story for another yeah. interview. So we have to have a more holistic view because. Giving gift cards fulfills the access portion, the economic access portion of the definition of food security. People will be able to buy. So, food security exists when all people, all time, have physical, social, economic access, safe, sufficient, nutritious food for dietary and cultural preferences. We fulfill the economic access portion of it. But is there physical access? What use is the $200 gift card if the closest grocery store, the closest real grocery store, is half a mile away or a 30 minute bus ride away? What if there's no community of practice? There's no social access to that food, meaning there's community violence. There's no safe, stable, humane housing. Then we're also just wasting money. So I would propose let's be naive because when we're naive, our goals can at least be as big as the problems we're facing. Because if if we ever lose that childlike hope to how we can tackle this stuff, we're toast. But then let's get holistic and say, we have the capability now to provide $200 gift cards to people. What else can we do to make sure there's the economic, social, physical access? What can we do to build community to do it? We should ask community, would this be helpful if we just gave you $200 gift cards? We tried this in 2020. We were giving, there was an amazing program where we were giving families gift cards. Some gift cards were utilized, some were not. So we have to have a more Mm. holistic, comprehensive, multi-sector approach.
0: In terms of access or availability, I guess transportation, grocery store delivery programs, and I can say I live in Morristown, so pretty much every grocery store has some way of delivering you groceries. Is there some way to leverage that capability in our state to provide at-home delivery for folks who don't have the ability to go out and get their groceries?
1: Yes. There's a couple of things that have to go into that. One, families need access to tech. They need access to internet to be yeah. able to shop from home. So we're talking about broadband here. We're really so.
0: peeling the onion here.
1: Yeah. How long is, how long is this? <laughs> it was just on NPR last night, how home delivery really shot through the roof, especially for uh, families with people with disabilities and for seniors. It shot through the roof. The EDA, they just had the press release maybe like last month, is willing to pilot community fridges at access points where grocery stores can deliver to that access point because sometimes the grocery stores what what we witnessed firsthand is sometimes grocery stores wouldn't deliver to some of our families or sometimes grocery stores didn't have the ability to take the snap benefits of our families. We're looking at infrastructure here we need the internet right. we need the access points we need the community agency and we need the true partnership of the grocery stores. But we have to start thinking outside the box. The expansion of home delivery, a lot of us were headed in this direction, Aaron. like Mm. in terms of food access. We knew we had to get to home delivery because even for what I was seeing on the front lines, we had some families waiting like an hour outside our facility for a taxi cab or right. they had to lug everything onto a bus. So we were always trying to figure out how do we get this food to you? Cause that also helps build agency and community power. The ramp up of home delivery was born out of necessity because we all had to all of a sudden shelter at home and we had to isolate. So yeah. it, it has a role. We were always going to head there. We did it. We did it. We did home delivery in 2020, 2021, even 2022. So the challenge really is on everybody on philanthropy on community organizations on private sector how willing are we to stand tall and keep going, keep figuring this out.
0: Do you have a roadmap that you are, I know you've only been four months now. Four months, (laughs) yes. You get a few more. Uh, Are you going to post-publish, share some, like a roadmap for, you know, decreasing food insecurity in the state of New Jersey or increasing access for residents of New Jersey? What does it look like in the five, 10 years?
1: I wouldn't necessarily call it a roadmap, but I can tell you we have a program budget and we have a research budget. So one of the things we're already starting my first two hires were a program manager and a research and evaluation manager so building a research plan so that everything is backed by good research and best practices That's and community-based great. participatory research and mixed methods so that when we're saying hey does this work we're not guessing we're gonna develop that we want to develop a language guide so that people can understand what's the difference between hunger and food insecurity so, Great example, like I'm constantly mind blown when I meet really smart people that, you know, educate me more and more about where I should focus. So a language guide. What is the difference between hunger and food insecurity? Food insecurity is a household level socioeconomic state. Hunger is a physiological state. So even like, do you want to tackle hunger or do you want to tackle food insecurity? So we'll develop a language guide so that we can all guess, agree and build common language together. That research, that language guide gets built in partnership with all of our state agencies, because this is about convening and understanding best practices, and all of our local organizations and our local organizations working with people in community. So we develop all that. That's year one. That will give us the foundational knowledge to create our roadmap for New Jersey. Our advantage here is that, again... We have legislative partners that are willing to do broad strokes. I did an interview in 2020 where somebody said to me, you know, Mark, policy is too narrow. Here we go then. Yeah, Policy is now very broad. There is now a state level executive branch office whose sole charge is move the needle on food security. It doesn't get much broader than that. So how can we all come together, look at best practices and agree? What's the problem? How are we trying to solve it? What are the words we're going to use? to tackle problems, and who needs to be at the table.
0: I like it. It's really exciting. I mean, it's the, the language itself, Even I'm sure I've botched some things in this conversation. Uh, oh, but I, probably having have that, to. I think having that common language is really, it's an important piece that might otherwise be overlooked. Because I feel like the urgency is such that I just, I want the problem to be solved. How do we live in a rich state and yet have this enormous concern. So that urgency, I think, can sometimes probably overshadow the sort of need to level set and ensure that everyone is on the same page, solving the same problem.
1: Can I give you other examples about access that I'm just like, our language that I'm mind-blowing when I think yeah. about it? So we have an emergency food system that's designed for emergencies. And we keep saying, those of us that are doing this work, of food pantry, food banks, keep saying emergency work. But in terms of language... Do we actually know that the emergency food system is used chronically? Think about that language. We have an emergency food system that is used chronically. I was seeing 4,000 people a month, my team and I. They were by appointment. So we knew who you were and we knew you were coming, but they're chronically using an emergency system. And then another great example about language, access versus availability. Our food pantries, our food banking system, we say we do access, But if what we're doing is buying food to make it available, or we're taking on government food to make it available, what we're doing is availability, but we have to challenge ourselves to make it accessible. I am a food access organization. I flubbed this several times. I was not running a food access organization. I was running a food availability organization and a food utilization organization, maybe stability, but we needed to get to access. So language, super important. Helpful. That's
0: helpful. What are the big policy levers, do you think, to address food insecurity? Are there things that are less about food but get more upstream to address the real root cause?
1: Our farm bill, which is up for redrafting, last one was what, 2018, if we're talking about a policy lever, a huge portion, three quarters of the farm bill in the United States is on SNAP. And we have to keep it. We're all about to go into a benefits cliff on March 1st, where seniors and people with disabilities who are getting $281 in SNAP are now going to go down to 95. And Mm -hmm. it's 95 in New Jersey because we passed that bill. So that's a policy lever that we were able to accomplish in other states. Those same people are going to go down to $23 a month. average loss to a family is going to be about $85 a month. And that's really going to affect our safety net hospitals, our frontline organizations, our nonprofits. And your listeners need to understand, especially if they're funding these organizations, those organizations are overwhelmed right now because of factors that do not include this benefits cliff on March Mm -hmm. 1. So that's what we're walking into. If we somehow chop up the farm bill, and take out SNAP funding, we put even more people into a whole lot of a toxic stress situation. But in the Farm Bill as well, if we're talking about policy levers, are actually USDA grants that fund the development and research of regional food hub models, farm to community models, farm to school models, that needs to get funded too, because frontline organizations don't have the resources to do both. Some may may have it, but imagine thinking about how do you do mixed methods, community-based participatory research, build outcomes tracking tools, and do research while you're serving 4,000 people? but if we're talking about policy levers the farm bill actually has modalities in there where we can fund this work so we need to we need to look at that and then more specific to New Jersey we're doing it now we're creating broad policies that actually give folks on the front line more freedom and more room to work you know i have personally seen the department of health the department of human services say how do we do this together How do we work with you? Remember the state official who I mentioned to you said, we're not good at building community relationships. We need you. We're able to do that. We can pull on those policy levers now, but we have to be holistic. And while we're being holistic, we have to be naive enough to hope that we can move the needle.
0: You know, one of the things that I think about, and maybe this is too simplistic a view, is raising the minimum wage, something that would alleviate some, most, 50% Of the concerns that we have for folks accessing high quality food on an ongoing way?
1: Before the state can raise the minimum wage, because we need to do it. I think last time I was on the front lines having this conversation, minimum wage needs to be about 25 bucks, 30 bucks, in order for a single mom with two kids to make it. Maybe we get there in this climate where we can do broad strokes, or at least we can get close to having that conversation. But also if funders are willing to give frontline organizations the gen ops funding they need, so that they can raise the minimum wage. I had partners that allowed me to bring the minimum wage up to $15. But what I was competing with was Costco, Walmart, where not only were they at $15, those forkl- their forklift operators were getting a $1,000 sign-on bonus, $3,000 mm-hmm. sign-on bonus. In order to raise the minimum wage, we can do it on the policy side. It'll take some time. But in the private and philanthropic and nonprofit sector, we have to dare to make our goals as big as the problems we're facing. Yeah. And we can tell us, we can tell each other, let's all raise it to 15 and to 18. And when we get there, we'll know that it's not enough because 15 to 18 doesn't get you to safe, stable, humane housing. It doesn't get you to a car, right. it doesn't get you to right. other things, but we have to stay committed to it. We have to be naive enough to stay committed to big, crazy dreams.
0: I, hear you. I promise
1: you that's the best place to work from to Mm -hmm. really pull on levers and make change.
0: You were talking about your previous role in having philanthropists committed to your vision on increasing wages. I would imagine as a leader doing that, you would need a longer than one year grant, right? You need to have some commitment that you can pay those wages beyond.
1: I I had to drop a plan and I tell my phone, and I still tell funders this now, ask your grantees for a plan for outcomes and outputs. Mm -hmm. I had to drop a plan, do that. And yes, multi-year is always better than one year. General funding with defined goals and agreed upon goals is way better than program funding for a specific program. It's also important for philanthropy to participate, to be present. Hans came to my organization. You came, philanthropy came. And what I would do is I would get out of the way in some of the visits. They were able to converse with our families and our teams. That's what philanthropy giving power into this conversation and into this work looks like. You have to participate. You could write a check, and many organizations would love you to write checks. But if we're talking about holistic, sustainable, community-building food security, we have to participate.
0: What would your recommendation be to a new philanthropist in this work? What's the touch point that you would say, here's one place to start. Here's where your dollars and your efforts can go. Do good.
1: If you're a new philanthropist and you're trying to break into this space, I think you first have to define what matters to you. Because if you don't, you're just a check writer. You won't really participate or have consensus or buy-in if you haven't decided what matters to you. So pick your spot, pick what matters to you, and then talk to people like you. Your role is yeah. chief philanthropic officer who is actually active in community. You came to see yeah. me. That's where that's where we met. And ask, where should I go? Who should I see? Now, not everybody in philanthropy wants to go out and do that or or has the time or the bandwidth to go out and do that. Yeah,
0: and that's okay.
1: But yeah, exactly. It's totally okay. Just know what you care about, know what matters to you, and ask questions of the people who are out there doing the work and rely on resources. And then also you can reach out to your local nonprofits. Once you find out what you want, ask the Google. Yeah, I the care Googles. about food security. <laughs> yeah. And type it into the Googles and yeah. it'll come up. So
0: we, I know we don't have a ton of time left. I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to share. I know some of this, but I would love for you to share with our listeners what brought you, what was your sort of path to get where you are today?
1: Long-winded. Went to law school in New York left law school to be um, a lay missionary in the slums in the Philippines, did youth programming, took that into the corporate world, had my aha moment in 2008 when the economy crashed and I lost everything. And I remember I was walking to my crappy job after I had lost everything in Chicago. And I was walking over the Chicago river and I looked up at the Boston Consulting group building. And I said, God, if you ever give me the opportunity to be in charge of other people's lives or careers. I promise I'll I'll do better. And that's what led me back to my fixed point, my guiding principle, which is I should get back into nonprofit. I should Mm -hmm. get back into community. So I worked for the first African-American woman on the federal bench in Illinois, helping kids get into college and law school and get clerkships. That's where I found my two mentors. I took that into juvenile justice. And then cancer brought me home in 2017 My mom, who is now cancer-free, got diagnosed with a rare form of breast cancer, and I had this choice. Do I stay in juvenile justice because I had a job offer in juvenile justice, or do I go into food security and build the very thing that we said we always needed in Chicago? And I Mm -hmm. think striving to build what I thought we needed in Chicago led me to this point where I am now.
0: How did you get from
1: Chicago to New Jersey? I'm a Jersey boy. Jersey boys always come home. My family immigrated <laughs> to Jersey in like 92. Oh, I wow. went I went to Monmouth University when Monmouth University was still Monmouth College. So yeah, it, it was It was the end of 20. I remember it vividly, actually. Thank you for allowing me to storytell. I remember it vividly. I had just finished one of my most successful fundraising events in Chicago. And I got a, an email from my dad saying, this is the hardest email I'm going to have ever after I choose your three kids, your mom has cancer. I looked at my wife and I said, I think we're moving back to New Jersey. I actually timed all of my Jersey interviews for jobs in times when I, I knew my mom was going to have some kind of like important like visit for her treatment. So
0: I'm so you know, glad she's okay. And I hope you thank her for all of us that she brought you back.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> I, I, I do every time. I, I tell her all the time. My mom, my parents were huge influences on, on me and doing this. And so, yeah, timing is everything I never in a million years would have thought. That I would be back here in New Jersey and look where we are. Pretty great. Pretty great.
0: All right. Last question. Give me a great book that you've read recently or one that either guides you professionally or that you've just enjoyed personally.
1: Tattoos on the Heart, Father Greg Mm -hmm. Boyle. Yep. That's a good one. (laughs) You knew I'd like that one. But then if I may, The Whole Brain Child, that one's a much easier read. And it's actually about child development and child neurodevelopment. Mm. And if you care about how to help children develop, but you care about this perspective of community building and why it matters so much. A whole brain child gives you perspective into, oh my gosh, this is how my baby girl is growing up and how she's developing. This is why she needs to be in a, a safe environment.
0: Thank you. It's a good You're one. Welcome. I appreciate you. Thanks for being here today. appreciate you as well. This is so much fun. I hope you come back as I get better at hosting our second guest. We'd love to have you back. Thank you so much, really. Thanks for taking the time to educate our listeners about this important topic and sharing a little bit about your personal path to work in food security. And to our listeners, we appreciate you listening to Jersey Gives a Damn, Community Foundation of New Jersey podcast. Bye for now.